Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. Good morning. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable unto you, O God, our rock and our Redeemer. This we pray in your name. Amen. So early this morning, there was a significant event that occurred while most of us were sleeping. Daylight savings time. Now, the pastoral staff knows this did occur because we see all the empty seats beside you, which actually means people will be showing up in the next 30 minutes for church, so please smile and graciously, that's key, graciously welcome them. Really, though, have you ever thought about the pros and cons of daylight savings time? Have you ever thought about what we actually gain or what we actually lose from resetting our clocks backwards and forwards each year. That is what we may be losing from the reorienting of our lives to take advantage of more daylight. Or what real advantages there are in giving up an hour of sleep. You know, one of the reasons we're so willing as a society To lose an hour of sleep each spring is because it supposedly enables us to take advantage of more daylight. And certainly more daylight is worth an hour of sleep, right, children? And with more light, well, there's more time to do more things, to be more productive, to be more efficient, to busy ourselves with work and with planning ahead. And one of the reasons many of us busy ourselves with planning our days, our weeks, our months, even our years, is because we want to prevent as much uncertainty that life offers. But there's a paradox in all this, right? I mean, think about it. More daylight usually means the temptation for our already wearied out and worn selves to say yes to doing more and more and more, and more, which really just results in more time to neglect our families, our friends, our spouse, one another, celebration, feasting, etc. Because of the people that we have become through the choices that we have made, for some of us it's very hard not to give into the temptation of a busy life. It's hard to say no. And as I've already noted, there's an even greater loss than losing an hour of sleep this morning when we're trying to take advantage of more daylight. Now, please hear me. This is not to give daylight a bad reputation. (laughs) Really, hear me. Daylight is good. In fact, God created it and God said that it was good in Genesis 1. But from the beginning of time... Humanity has struggled with making good things into godlike things, those things that we reorient our lives around. And we believe the lie. We always have. We're still prone to believing the lie that good things are far better than life with God. 
And this is evident in the many ways our lives are oriented and governed by and the ways in which they circle around some things and not others. And as we know, the story from there is very, very unpromising. Now, you might be thinking, what does any of this have to do with any of our scripture readings this morning? If you're uncertain, good. Because uncertainty, as we will see, is not always a bad thing. So my sermon is based on our gospel lesson, Luke 4, 1 through 13, where Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and is tested for 40 days by Satan. It is a story of light and darkness. In fact, it's a story of competing lights. Jesus, the light of the world, and Lucifer, who is commonly known as the light bearer, just a little dimmer, so to speak. It's a story about salvation in a very unexpected place full of uncertainties, the wilderness of all places. In short, what we read in Luke's gospel story is that Jesus gives up seemingly good things, food, power, and influence. And he prefers a life with God which results in victory over Satan, sin, and death for our good. And as we journey through this story, I hope that you will come to see that it actually has far less to do with the very things that Jesus resists and much more to do with his rejection of Satan's subtle lie concerning his true identity, that he is the Son of God. You see, Jesus knows who he is, the Son of God, God in flesh, God's salvation, and he knows in, with, and to whom he belongs, Almighty God. It is because of Jesus' rejection of Satan, sin, and death that we have life, that we have salvation in him. Amen? Now, before we turn to the pages of this particular passage I want for the next five minutes or so just to conduct a thought experiment that I do hope will help you better understand what's at stake in Luke's gospel story. So in light of daylight savings time, you see what I did there? In light of daylight savings time, I want you to think about lights, especially artificial electric lights. So raise your hand if anyone other than Lena Van Wyke spends more time during a typical day in natural light rather than under artificial lights? Raise, raise them high. Two. Not doing so well here. All right. Well, have you ever thought about what artificial lights might actually tell us about the world we live in? Like many forms of technology, electric lights is kind of the expression of our longing to escape the uncertainties of darkness and night, if not uncertainty itself. Every culture, until this recent culture, <laughs> perceived the rhythm of day and night as essential to human experience. The night fell at its time in all human activities that required good light, most of our work, ceased. And in the dim of night, people tended to gather in what they hoped would be safe places, in their nightly prayers, they asked God to protect them from the dangers of the night. 
Please, Lord, no crisis in the dark that would require bright light. Please, God, no attacks from dangerous humans or animals or weather. Night was once frightening. Everyone knew it. And it made any kind of work mightily inconvenient. But these same cultures also understood the dark to be a holy time, a time when human beings were open to visions and play and tenderness, sleep and dreams. You know, the psalmist in Psalm 127 praises sleep as the time of God. In vain do you put off going to bed and get up early, sweating to make your living, since God provides for God's people while they are sleeping. To stay with Scripture, powerful and life-shaping visions of Abraham, Samuel, even Jesus emerge in the frightening dark. Nor was bright light always considered good. As I've already mentioned, Satan's name, Lucifer, means light carrier and references the understanding that sometimes too much clarity can turn violent. Now, this is a wisdom tradition that we find at the end of the books of Job and Jonah, actually. So the point here is that sometimes light is holy and sometimes light is violent. Dark is sometimes violent, yet sometimes holy. But with the development of artificial lighting that is all around us has come the loss of the unavoidable darkness. Did you know that 80% of the world's population lives under what is known as sky glow? In the United States and Europe, 99% of the public cannot and most likely will never experience a natural light. So with the loss of unavoidable darkness, our society has also lost a certain capacity for living with uncertainty. Something I believe is actually essential for our Christian faithful living. One might wonder whether the loss of the unavoidable night might have eroded our ability to wait patient and attentively when we actually are uncertain. And it's as if this loss, right, over time has kind of trained us into becoming a particular type of person or people, a society full of people that are overworked, that are stressed out, burned out, sleep-deprived, worried, depressed, and ironically, better procrastinators. Really, I'll ask it one more time. Have you ever thought about how what you gain and what you lose might actually train you toward becoming a certain type of person. I mean, if you don't believe me, go to any coffee shop in Greensboro on a given weeknight or weekend and watch all the 16 to 40-year-olds having a romantic date night with their smartphones in the presence of the one they say they claim to actually love. You know, some even conduct their dates texting each other back and forth while they're actually sitting across the table from one another. It's absolutely ridiculous. The point here is that cell phones in the hands of 16 to 40-year-olds on date night is the loss of genuine romance. It is the loss of real, genuine relationship. But this phenomenon is not limited to modern dating patterns, is it? It occurs in so many areas of our lives when we're too busy texting, gaming, or Instagramming away to be present to our kids, yes, adults do this too, to our friends and to one another. 
So we choose to say no to some things which might actually be good things, and then we choose to say yes to seemingly good things that are actually not good things at all. You see, over the years, I used this thought experiment and examples in many of my theology courses. And this is my goal. My goal is to challenge people to ask the right questions, such as what are we actually losing from what we have gained and what are we actually gaining from what we feel that we have actually lost? This is tension we should be living in during Lent, what we're giving up, but what are we actually gaining? Nourishment and life, working out our salvation. I believe these questions force us to think about how our gaining and losing not only affect how we may come to see ourselves, but also who we actually have become already. So in our gospel lesson this morning, Luke narrates an epic encounter between Jesus and Satan. And Luke is reminding us that the means by which Jesus resists temptation is characteristic of the means of our very salvation. Self-denial and humility. If there's one thing I want you to hear today, it's this. That self-denial and humility is the way of Jesus. It is the way of redemption. It is the pattern of salvation. And Jesus not only resists all temptation, even Satan himself, but in doing so, saves the whole world, you and I. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. In so many ways, Jesus' loss is actually our gain. Ultimately, our gain is on the cross because it is there that death, hell, and Satan and all of his works are completely undone. So we see in Luke's gospel that the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness in order to prepare him for ministry toward the cross. And so the Spirit leads him away into a place that is full of all uncertainty. In this passage, we learn from Jesus how to face uncertainty, the wilderness, and the testing that accompanies our lives, whether it comes in the form of Satan the actual night, whether it comes in the form of suffering and pain or even the dark night of the soul, as many Christians have written about over the past few centuries. Uncertainty is the encounter and the experience that Jesus experiences in these 40 days. You know, uncertainty is difficult. It's a very difficult reality that I assume that we all have experienced. None of us like it. We want to know what, when, what time, how long, and who with. Uncertainties abound all around us, do they not? Insurance companies exist for this very reason, but so does Christian faith. Yet we are mistaken if we think that Christian faith solves our uncertainty. It doesn't. 
Christian faith is not about easy answers. It's about being faithful. About being faithful in the midst of a life full of uncertainty. In fact, uncertainty can ultimately sustain and make your faith even stronger. Jesus makes this very clear. That uncertainty accompanies those who wish to follow him. And his disciples are those who must be able to bear uncertainty. After all, he did remind one of his followers in Luke 9 that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head, which meant that he was homeless. And Jesus' response, in a way, is how Jesus puts forth this question to you and I. Can you bear uncertainty? Can you take this kind of life? These are questions that Jesus wants all of his disciples to wrestle with. Uncertainty was a reality that Jesus himself wrestled with. And we see this in the wilderness. The wilderness was a place where God met the Jewish people after rescuing them from Egypt as we read in our Old Testament lesson this morning. In the wilderness, God shapes these people that he calls his covenant people into that very thing, that reality, that covenantal people, all in the midst of apparent uncertainties. For 40 years, they did not know what they would eat or the very actual place that they would end up. Hence, their continual grumbling, as we have read over and over, year after year, when we kind of rehearse the, the, the redemptive narrative of Israel and the church. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus is led again, this time by the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness, where he faces temptations and testings by his adversary, the devil. The location of Jesus' temptation, the wilderness, ought to remind us of that rescue of God over his people. Geographically, the wilderness is a very arid and kind of... Uh, arid region very close to the deserts. It's not devoid of life, but it is uncultivated. It's very uninhabited. It's full of sand. It's full of wasteland. It's full of wild bush. In many ways, it's a no man's land, and it's full of hazards and full of all types of uncertainties. Now, the second location we see in this story in Luke 4 is Jerusalem. This is the city of David. This is the center of Jewish power, Jewish identity, and Jewish worship. This place of power and worship is the setting we see for the final temptation. Now, one more thing. Jesus was not tempted three times. The text says that he was tempted throughout those 40 days. And the temptations that Satan presents are aimed at the core of Jesus's identity. On two occasions, look with me in verses three and nine. Satan begins his temptation by calling into question what? Jesus' identity. He states, if, if, if you are the Son of God. And this is followed by a challenge to prove his identity with some godlike evidence, such as turning a stone into bread or orchestrating some epic angelic rescue from death, verses 9 through 11. These temptations are not targeted at Jesus' human weakness. In other words, Jesus did not go into the wilderness to fast. Rather, fasting 
and communion with the Holy Spirit are the means by which Jesus would effectively resist temptation, even Satan himself. So how are you doing with fasting? Do you fast? Do you even know what it means to fast? I encourage you to reach out to one of us dressed like angels this morning. <laughs> if you want to know more about fasting, we would love to give you um, hints on how to do that and what to do and why it is essential for Christian faith and practice. You see, each temptation is aimed at Jesus' relationship to God. There was no reason for Jesus to prove his identity. He did, not need to, he did not need to earn or even learn that he was the Son of God because we have already seen in Luke's Gospel, if you've been reading Luke's Gospel, that already seven times Jesus has been declared the Son of God, one of which was by the Father himself at his baptism. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And Satan continuously tempts him to display this identity in self-serving ways. You see, the story that Satan would have Jesus believe is filled with self-indulgence. It's filled with pride. It's filled with self-serving religious identity. Make yourself bread from stones. Self-indulgence. All the nations of the world will belong to you if you worship me, pride. And if you are the Son of God, cast yourself from the top of this temple, self-serving religious identity. But the story of Jesus is God's story, which is completely shaped by the word of God. For Jesus' response shows an awareness of the true source of life and identity. Jesus knows that life is more than food, Deuteronomy 8.3. Jesus knows that he is utterly dependent upon God, the one worthy of true worship, Deuteronomy 6.13. And Jesus understands the very nature of God's character, and it is not one to be tested. Over and over again, Jesus' response are rooted in an underlying narrative that he is dependent on God rather than self, life, glory, and identity. He is dependent on God rather than self for his life, glory, and identity. Sorry. But don't be fooled. It's not enough to know Scripture to believe or to believe Jesus is the Son of God. Because we see that Satan actually believes. Satan actually knows that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, Satan not only knows and believes that Jesus is the Son of God, but Satan actually knows Scripture most likely better than myself and all of you in this room. Satan cites Psalm 91 in the second temptation in Luke 4, and he implicitly even seems to concede that Jesus is the Son of God based on the flow of his temptations. Scandalously, he even rightly acknowledges I mean, Satan is actually admitting that power that he possesses has actually been given to him. And wait for it. All that Satan says in his attempt to test Jesus, well, it's not necessarily false at all. I mean, Jesus could have turned creative matter into nourishment. After all, it would be his first miracle at the wedding in Cana 
where he turns water into wine. Also notice that Jesus doesn't correct Satan when he says in verses 6 and 7, yes, Satan had been given authority and splendor. Satan could have given away what had been given to him. However, what he actually says is only half of that story. And it is to this end that Jesus reminds him that one day he will fall, that he will worship the one from whom all powers and principalities originate, that he, like you and I, will worship the Lord, and that we will serve him only, and then he will be cast away. And we see in the final temptation, Satan fearlessly kind of manning up, so to speak, strategically going after Jesus, using the word of God to persuade Jesus to throw himself down from the temple. And it is here that we see Satan arguing from Scripture. Note well, beloved, Satan does not always try to ruin your faith by saying the word of God is not true. Often, he tries to destroy your faith by affirming some passage and using it to lead you in disobedience. And so scripture must be read rightly in light of God's nature, in light of the life that God has envisioned for God's people. And such a life is rooted in God's narrative of deliverance, a response of faithful obedience to God, rather than in self-reliance, which is Satan's story. Faithful obedience to God is faithful participation in the story of God. Learn it. Read it. Memorize it. Live it out. And the ultimate temptation for many, if not all of us, well, it's to live in light of the story we like to tell ourselves. A story filled with comfort, control, and sentimentality, which is just killing our joy in Christ. Now, I'm going to be a little vulnerable here because for many years, I have legitimately wondered why Satan does not tempt Jesus to despair. It's actually something that we sing all the time, when Satan tempts me to despair. But we don't actually see that in the Bible with Satan and Jesus. Satan tempts Jesus with comfort, power, and prestige. And honestly, (laughs) in all my years of theological education, I didn't really have a good understanding of this. Until recently, through prayer, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that I am tempted most when called to give up the very things that Jesus is resisting. Comfort and what little power and prestige I think I have. In so many ways, many of us in this room have benefited from the very things that Jesus rejects here in Luke 4. Comfort, what little authority, influence, and importance you possess. And so maybe the reason why Satan tempts Jesus in the way that he does is because he doesn't want Jesus to suffer. Because he knows that Jesus' suffering 
is victory over sin, death, and himself. And ultimately, Jesus' victory in and through suffering is for your life. Consider this. Satan does not want us to go into the wilderness. He doesn't want you to give up things to fast from food or media or technology or whatever it may be. Because time and time again, it is in the wilderness where the uncertainties of life abound that God shows up and offers salvation. Rhetorically speaking, Satan probably doesn't even need to tempt you like he did Jesus. Because your life, if it's anything like mine, is in so many ways already shaped and saturated and contained and characterized by those very things that Jesus rejects. Lord, have mercy. If you don't think this is true, then ask yourself an honest question. How much quality time have you spent in prayer, fasting, solitude, and Sabbath with the Lord this week? There are so many cultural aspirations that prevent us from being led by the Holy Spirit. Period. And then being led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness of our lives. Today marks the first Sunday in Lent, which is a season intended to reorient our lives to listening to the Holy Spirit more than daylight savings time. It's to reorient our lives to listening to the Holy Spirit who may be calling us away from it all. That we might actually grow and gain from the things we actually lose. That we might grow in the knowledge of who, what, and how we are, and who we are meant to be and become. And while uncertainty may lie ahead, it may be the very air that you and I breathe. What is certain is that Jesus beat Satan, death, and hell out of your story so that you could forever be a child of God, conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, who, Paul says, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by becoming a man in human likeness. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Salvation, sanctification, and growth is in the wilderness, people. In the midst of a complex life full of uncertainties, salvation is there. Because what is certain is that God's Spirit dwells within us, and the Spirit will lead us in accordance with God's holy word. Amen? May we faithfully follow Jesus, even if it means being led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness of life. And as we journey through this season of Lent together, may we take time to learn from Jesus how to face uncertainty, the wilderness that accompanies our lives. And in doing so, might we allow God's Spirit to train us in new ways, to train us to see and live in light of the many gains birthed from all the things we know that we need to give up. And hopefully the growth that we experience 
from our losing ourselves in Jesus Christ will further shape and mold us into the person and people of God who not only take delight in what Jesus says to Satan, but more so actually in living it out. Beloved, may the bread that we pray for in our Lord's Prayer this day be the bread of life. Jesus Christ, the Son of God who satisfies. May we worship in spirit and truth. And may we serve God only, not putting the Lord our God to the test. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.